Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to this new episode of the EdTech Podcast, the show that aims to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. This week, I'm super excited to share the first episode in our new series, Education 4.0, co-curated with our friends at JISC. This first episode looks at teaching transformed. How does teaching change when blended learning is just, well, learning? As soon as you start to talk about teaching and learning, people immediately have this mental model, don't they, of lecture theatres with seats in serried ranks and, you know, desks in a school all facing forward at the teacher. And of course, we know that there are there are so many more engaging and potentially more fruitful ways of doing teaching and learning. And again, I think you'll hear some interesting examples as the series progresses. That's the voice of Martin Hamilton, futurist at JISC. He's trying to look three to five years out and think about how education institutions might want to anticipate change coming down the line. A lot of our institutions, a lot of our industries, frankly our politicians as well, haven't quite caught up with the third industrial revolution yet the spread of the internet into all the facets of our lives. We, we tend to still think of work as a place you go rather than a thing that you do. And a lot of that thinking kind of spills over, I think, into education as well. So what we're calling Education 4.0, we think really there are, there are two key aspects to it. One is how do you prepare the learner of today for near future careers, near future industries and ways of working that are only really being invented perhaps after you've started, let's say you've started a a three-year degree in October. So much will have changed by the time you, you come out the other end. You stand on the stage clutching your degree certificate. So much will have changed. How do we prepare people when we are trapped in that world of annual cycles and three-year planning processes and and all of that stuff that makes the machine run smoothly but is an impediment to being able to react swiftly to changing events. What can we do differently? How can we improve the way that we prepare people? But also at the same time, how can we use some of these tools, techniques and technologies to improve what we do as institutions yeah you know for example artificial intelligence you'll be hearing in the series from some people who are using it in quite innovative ways what happens when we just take artificial intelligence as as one of the tools in the toolbox you know it's it's the screwdriver let's say next to you know traditional teaching methods next to blended learning We'll just pop a bit of artificial intelligence in there. Let's pop a bit of immersive virtual and augmented reality in there. What changes when these things just start to become business as usual? One university answering that question in their own way is radically rethinking their approach to teaching and learning. Nestled in the East Midlands and just over 100 kilometres northwest of London lies the county town of Northampton and within it the University of Northampton. At the end of 2018, after four years in the build phase, the university opened its £330 million campus called Waterside. 
Not only did this transform a former derelict building and industrial site into a brand new purpose-built learning environment, but the arrival of the campus also fitted hand-in-glove with the teaching practices of active blended learning which preceded it. Um, I've worked at Northampton now for 23 years, so a long time. It's the only higher education institution I've worked in. In a former life, I was a chartered surveyor, so that was quite handy when I came to be involved in the campus work. My day job is responsibility for student administration across all areas, and I also have the library and learning resource team within my department and the careers, skills and changemaker hub. So a broad department focusing predominantly on student and student support, but everything else that hangs around the whole student experience. That's Jane Bunce, Director of Student and Academic Services at the University of Northampton. I spoke to her about how the new campus project started. Well, we had two campuses. They were both beginning to look dated. So about seven years ago, not long after the current Vice-Chancellor joined the university, there was some thinking around where the future of the universe lay in its existing estate. So when a site was found within the town centre, it was a brownfield site, part of it was a land swap. We intended to bring as much as possible from our existing provision onto one site. That gave us a really good opportunity to think about absolutely everything we do and how we work and how we wanted it to work and how what sort of student experience we wanted to deliver. So we looked at a big feasibility study, how could we get the money, how much could we build? And at the same time as we were thinking about those practical matters, essential, but obviously they were the practical side. What would the design look like if you were starting from nothing, from a brownfield site? And how would you build into that the best student learning experience? And I think when we were thinking about that, we were thinking particularly about our kinds of students. Students who are looking at particularly about skill development, we've got a lot of courses that are vocational courses. How would the space look to best deliver for those students? A huge part of this delivery for students is the teaching and learning approach. The University of Northampton has been awarded gold, the highest possible mark in the Government's Teaching Excellence Framework, or TEF. Why is this? Professor Alejandro Armellini is Dean of Learning and Teaching and Director of the Institute of Learning and Teaching in Higher Education at the University of Northampton. Here is his take on the benefits of active blended learning. some of the key notions that support the view that an appropriate blend is a good option for students and staff alike stems from early 19th century research and early 20th century research in areas such as interactions in education, in areas such as student engagement. That basic early knowledge coupled with advances in technology gives you opportunities to experiment with forms of learning on a campus and off a campus that we today refer to as blended. Now, those blends do not simply mix face-to-face with online. That is a very sad, boring, traditionally, if you like, view of blended learning. The view of blended learning that we support is multidimensional, multi-layered, complex, exciting, messy. 
if you like. It does blend on and off campus. It does blend online and face-to-face, but it also incorporates many other aspects to it. So, for example, the level of focus on employability or on the pure academic content, the focus on internships or, or lack of them, the focus on employability, the focus on peer assessment or tutor-marked assignments, the focus on synchronous versus asynchronous, all of those things constitute a much more interesting blend than very often is the case by when looked at from the angle of online versus face-to-face only. So we, we took those into account when we decided what shape, what format, what features would characterize our new campus. For example, the, you, your listeners may or may not know that Waterside has no lecture theatres, and that is an interesting feature of this campus. The largest teaching space that we've got is a, a Harvard-style teaching room which accommodates 80 people. All other rooms are smaller than that. That gives you an idea that we are not predicating the active blended learning model on making things cheaper. Indeed, this is an expensive model of teaching. It forces us to multiple teach. It forces us to conduct a much more personalized approach to learning and teaching in smaller groups. It is true that we are not doing the Oxbridge type one-to-one tutorial. We, We cannot afford to do that at all times. We do that when we can, but we we don't do that uh, at scale. But on the other hand, we teach in smaller groups. So students that the the students that we attract may find a lot of and do find a lot of value in sitting in smaller groups than would be the case if they were in a 300-seater lecture theater where information is delivered to them. We prefer a much more, as I said, personalized approach that focuses on what learners do with content rather than the content itself, that focuses on staff knowing their names, for example, that focuses on a much more tangible, much more personal, much more enjoyable way of looking at higher education than a a large lecture theatre would convey. But if you're listening in and thinking, we don't have the luxury of starting from scratch with a new campus redesign, don't think you're off the hook. A physical reinvention is not necessary. It is important to clarify that a lot of the work that we started when I joined the university in 2012 was going to happen regardless of the move. We never had the move in mind when we rolled out the initial learning and teaching plan that instituted, that if you like, branded or coined the term active blended learning. At that point, many of us didn't know that we would eventually move to a new campus six years later. We were making the changes anyway. The normalization process, or if you like, active blended learning as our new normal, was happening as the years passed with or without the Waterside campus in mind. It is true that a lot of the work that we did in this respect informed the room sizes, the shapes, the types of buildings that we've got, the integration of teaching space with social space, the integration of library space with cafes and uh, and teaching areas, private meeting rooms and so forth. All of that was part of the rationale that we put forward in relation to both active blended learning and what the literature calls activity-based working that integrates multiple open spaces into a single space that is not owned by a particular department or faculty. So the bit that perhaps is most interesting to to our listeners is the fact that many higher education practitioners 
are probably already doing forms of blended learning. They, they may or may not know it, but it is very difficult to conceive a course, a, a university course in the 21st century that is pure, pure non-online or pure in, in any way or in one way or another. There is always a blend. The, the interesting thing then is how active is that blend? What is it that makes the blend student-centered? What is it that makes the blend work for the students? And, um, and there is where we get into the more interesting discussions about the act of teaching and teaching as a, as a unique act that is irreplicable, that will vary each time you conduct it, that will enable you to, to empower students to do things, maybe working differently in the morning group from the afternoon group, and that is what makes the blends differ from, from one another, and each of them is unique. So, the blends differ, but what are some of the central themes to consider? The first would be a complete commitment to student-centredness. This is your space, and it might not be the whole campus, it might not be the whole building, it might be a particular area, but this is your space. And you can reconfigure it and you can book it between 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock on Tuesday morning. This is your personal space, which you have booked to use how you see fit. Then there is the commitment to project-based education. We're all distracted by the day-to-day and there are bigger things afoot, ultimately. This is why I was so excited by, you, you mentioned the London Interdisciplinary School. I think what they're doing is really fascinating because their ethos is to be led by real world challenges. So there are real things, you know, there's there's the spread of disease, there's climate change. There are problems and there are also opportunities which we can use to to drive our approach to to teaching and learning. They can also drive our approach to to research and all of a sudden, everything gets much more visceral. How can I use how can I use this knowledge or how can I use this technology to make a difference in the world? And my hunch is that that's how to really get through to learners. That's how to really connect is for people to see that this thing that I am doing, this stuff that I am learning about, I will be able to use this to make a positive difference in the world. And it's it's a hugely empowering message to be able to take away. But what is the natural endpoint of this project-based learning? Do we really need to be on a university campus to make change happen? Or will our future student experience be a mashup of co-working space subscription, backed by university accreditation and supplemented by a library membership, for example? How important is the physical space? And what happens when we take this to its most extreme conclusion? It begs the question, how much do I need to be? And going back to that thing about the, the world of work, you know, can we draw an analogy with, with the world of learning? How much of this requires me to be in a particular place at a particular time? If we use the technology in a, a smart way to support and underpin teaching and learning, how much of the time can we say, right, This is down to you. You can pick this up whenever you want. I think in terms of our design of our space, 
you look at spaces that are generally used for all kinds of things, then we design the space to be as flexible as possible. So you could foresee shared use of spaces and, you know, universities don't use space all the time. So I don't think you build anything that stays the same forever. So the design has been developed so we can change the use of parts of the space. I suppose there is that interesting concept that it could be more shared with other. However, I still think at the moment place is important. Place and recognition of your roots and where you are doing your learning is very relevant. And going back to talk about face-to-face is critical. That doesn't mean to say that you can't use that space and others use the same space at different times of the day or the year. Yeah, yes. I would add that there are very few spaces on the new campus which are uniquely designed for a particular area or discipline. Yeah. Yeah, the vast majority of our teaching spaces are multi-purpose, highly flexible, adaptable to multiple disciplines, and very usable from each teaching room. We have wireless access to the multiple screens in the rooms, and that enables the, the multi-purposeness of, of the space. Uh, so you can effectively teach many things in the same space and use tools that are for purpose in, in those disciplines. Now, in, in terms of the university becoming a subscription service, I'm less convinced by that, far less convinced by that. I think that, are, that, that, that conversation can, can happen on many levels, but the principle of a subscription service for this is not one that is consistent with, for in our case, with being a change maker. But, but ultimately, I'm not sure it is a sustainable model for the graduates of the, of the 21st century. Space enables and space that is conducive to certain forms of learning and certain forms of teaching was a key consideration when we built what we built. If if a new vice chancellor stepped in in a few years' time and said, well, we want to demolish everything that that we've done and we want to to go back to the the traditional approach that is lecture-based, I think they would find it quite difficult to to build lecture theatres in the spaces that we've constructed here at Waterside. And in, in many ways, I'm happy that they would find it difficult because this is a space built for collaboration. This is a space built for learning in groups. This is a space built for activities. This is a space for active blended learning. And going back to, to lectures where the lecture is a prominent part of the mode of delivery, that, then that, that would cause significant problems on, in many ways, including the, the spaces that we've built. I think also what's become very interesting and certainly in terms of staff well-being and staff mental health is this this need to belong this need for a place and whilst we facilitated very much people working anywhere there was a pushback to have still a base Mm. where people can find each other so you've got to be careful you don't swing too far one way or the other and then cause yourself other issues further down the line. For Ale, the point about physical space is truly important when thinking about teaching and learning. We are a campus-based university. Bear in mind, we wouldn't build a £330 million campus if we wanted to become an online university. Active blended learning is not about being online. On the contrary, it's about being campus-based with elements that happen inside and outside the classroom. Some of those outside the classroom would happen online. So we are not a mini-open university. We don't want to be a mini-open university. We want to be a campus-based contact university that maximizes the value of contact time 
And we value that as much as our students and the parents of our students do. So the first point to be made clear is that the University of Northampton is a campus-based university. Some of our provision does have more and some of our provision has less online components. Uh, but all of those components are integrated into a single blend, hence the concept of a blend as opposed to multiple tracks on the same course. We don't want a course to be taught with bits of it completely isolated from the others. We don't want the, the kind of the face-to-face -face track of the course running in parallel to the online track. That's not the blend. That's two separate components. That would be oil and water. We want a blend. And that blend nurtures the face-to-face -face component from the online activity and vice versa. So that, that's an important distinction to make. We don't have uh, separate activities to encourage online participation as if it was divorced from what happens in the classroom, on the lab, or on the site. Now, in terms of bringing the blend together into a meaningful, coherent type of approach to learning and teaching, the, the, the design aspect of it is key. You design for student participation. You don't design for teacher delivery. And that is a separate conversation we might have about what that process of design looks like and how it translates into teaching practices that capitalize on the benefit of participative design. The problem of student engagement is present regardless of mode of study. So what you refer to as poor student engagement and high dropout rates in online courses, that is true. And, and it's also true that on campus, those figures are much more uh, encouraging. But we still have the engagement problem on campus, as, as do all universities. So, so we have to design in a way that encourages students to take ownership of their learning, regardless of mode of study. If they choose to emphasize aspects of the blend that happen more online than in the classroom, well, that's fine. That's their choice. But, but they've got to have the means and the courses need to be designed in a way that interaction, that, that participation is scaffolded appropriately. Uh, it's not just about read this for next week so they come prepared. That's a very simplistic arguably poor approach to learning and teaching and what in recent times is, is referred to as the flipped classroom. Course design has to be much more sophisticated than that. It's not watch this, read that, and come ready for a discussion next week. It is you've got to construct a much more meaningful task, focus on learning outcomes that, yes, will require people to read and watch and so on, but do more with that than just read and watch. And that is the, the art and craft of designing good courses for a blended learning environment. But changing systems and approaches is not all plain sailing. What are the obstacles we should consider when transforming ideas around teaching and learning? What about the internal challenges of communications? I think there were a couple of things that made me think. One of them was we did make a radical change in the way academic staff work. We wanted a campus that was inclusive, flexible, and where everything was shared. We did not want a campus where departments owned space. So that led us down the route of going for open plan academic workspaces. And also you have to think about what you can afford to build. You know, you can't get an endless pot of money, so you can't build just what you would like. So you have to make compromises. And all through the project, you're making these compromises. So one of the toughest things for me was to convince academic staff that they could work in open plan spaces and, and to some extent they could hot desk. 
radical change, radical change for our staff and a radical change within the sector too. I mean, the administrative and the professional service staff tended to work in more open plan offices anyway, so it wasn't a big change for those people, but it was for academics. So we started off the thinking around that about four years before we moved in, and we had a lot of sessions and feedback, surveys, working group on the working environment to really try to tease out what people's real concerns were. And I think by the time we actually came to move in, they were all worn down by it because we spent a lot of time thinking about it, thinking about working elsewhere, types of IT equipment that staff would need, right down to chairs, lockers, everything. So it's a question of working hard on the detail. But the other problem is when you're on a project that takes such a long time, you know, five years really from the green light to delivery, is that people will jump to conclusions. So people are asking questions and demanding answers, and you probably haven't got an answer. And if you don't give them an answer, they make one up. So that's a real challenge. Towards the end of the project, we did actually bring someone in who'd had experience of a big move to do comms to staff and students, and that was really helpful because it's very difficult to be on top of that as well as the practicalities of everything else. Supporting teams. Yes, I am responsible for academic staff development. So academic staff development at Northampton revolves around the professionalisation of teaching practice. In my area, particularly in the Institute of Learning and Teaching, we pay a lot of attention and place a lot of emphasis on, as I said before, teaching well. And that is demonstrated through, for example, professional recognition of teaching practice, which is the area where colleagues are able to obtain fellowships from Advance AG, formerly the Higher Education Academy. So enabling colleagues to follow a needs-driven process to obtain professional recognition of teaching has been a key part of our strategy. In order to teach well, you've got to identify the areas in which you need continuing professional development. Now, that needs analysis. That piece of work revolves around sharing practice, about being critical of one's practice as well as critical of other colleagues' practices. So that's why, for example, we have a peer observation code of practice. That's why we have courses for credit and not for credit that focuses on particular aspects of learning and teaching, which is, for example, including things like assessment, inclusion, special needs, and so forth. All those short, typically short courses are part of what we call the can-do framework, the can-do framework for staff development. When you've identified your needs, what you do is you, is you select a pathway within the can-do framework, which leads you to a point where you're ready to be considered for a fellowship. That is the measure it's like that, that the sector takes, that's the measure that TEF takes, about how, whether or not staff in universities have teaching qualifications or professional recognition. So the, 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 the way we've tackled this was very much needs-driven, very much focusing on the implementation of active blended learning through practices that are encouraged and are exemplified and are modeled through the CANDLE framework, leading to something that towards the end they can tangibly feel that they benefited from, i.e., fellowship, senior fellowship, principal fellowship. And juggling different ideas of success around a common goal. 
No, I, I don't think there is a tension. What there is, and, and Jay may, may want to add to this, but what there is is sometimes we've found that the, the term change maker, change maker and change making generally, they mean different things to different people. Generally, the, the, the definition we, we have adopted is being a change maker implies identifying a social problem and doing something about it. Now, in the context, in the academic context like ours, the, the intention of embedding change making into our ethos and making it part of our teaching practice and our strategies is that whatever we do in this university, our strength has to be teaching well for social mobility, for social impact and for employability. And not being a non-research intensive institution, being a teaching focus and employability focused institution, if there is one thing we need to do well, that one thing is teaching well. But teaching well, teaching well has to translate into tangible benefits for our learners. And those benefits of being a, an agent of change, being a being an employable citizen, being an ethical contributor to society, those are the the central principles of what we mean by being change makers in terms of staff as well as, as, as students. I think that's embedded within the skill development within course design so that the impact of change is developed through teaching and that should help students to come out when they finish their degrees with a better understanding of what their contribution can be and how they can impact society. That article that you were talking about links to a later article, which is from 2018, last year, which looks at the graduate attributes framework, which you may have encountered. If you look at the framework that we use for, at this university for our attributes, of, the, the attributes of our graduates, you will find that, that the, the, the whole purpose, the whole narrative behind the, the framework is, is what, what is it that makes the Northampton graduate different? And you will find in it uh, quite a big presence of skills, skills for the 21st century, skills for being employable, ethical citizens, skills for building strong, lasting networks, professional and otherwise, you will find a strong emphasis on that. And in, and in order to embed those in the curriculum, we've got to have a solid, credible curriculum design framework, which is what the Carpe Diem or Cairo process gives. Hand in hand with this credible curriculum development comes the idea of verification of teaching and learning quality. So what about the external challenges also of new entrants? We're not used to that yet. We, we haven't got our heads around it. And it may be that there are other subjects which are equally amenable, or it may be that perhaps um, the hardcore tech subjects have these unique characteristics. You know, if you, if you can get your hands on a Raspberry Pi, there's an enormous amount that you can teach yourself, but minimal outlay of cash. Mm-hmm. But does that hold true if your obsession becomes... I don't know, genomics. If you if you have to learn more about DNA, there's only so much you can do with kitchen sink experiments, uh, extracting the DNA from strawberries and, and things like this. And there comes a point when you need the facilities that an institution has. 
Yeah, there was a couple of things there that you, you kind of sparked in my mind. So one was around the idea of which subjects lend themselves to this perhaps more remote models. But then I was surprised to find recently, I've been looking at sort of lots of blockchain enabled education services that are popping up. And again, a great deal of them seem to be geared towards more sort of coding boot camps and that kind of thing. But then I was intrigued to look at Wolf University, which essentially is a sort of decoupling of the expertise within Oxford University around the classics and using blockchain to sort of verify the sort of tutorial model that Oxford University is famous for, but via the blockchain and taking away the operational overheads of a university. So really fascinating because that's kind of arguably as academic as it gets in terms of subject matter, but using a technology to kind of rethink how those subject matter experts are connecting with learners. I think Wolf University is is really fascinating. And actually, if you if you took a step back, you could say, you know, it, it, it's sometimes been called the, the Airbnb mm-hmm. of universities. And of course, it's very easy to fall into talking about the Uber of X or mm-hmm. the Airbnb of Y. But there is something very fundamental, I think, which we have to keep in mind, which is who says that you know about a subject? So mm-hmm. right now, if, if I come along and I have, I don't know, a, a medical degree from a reputable university, you might say you're probably going to trust me to give you a diagnosis or trust me to operate on you or, or something like that. Or actually, because we don't tend to check those things, we don't tend to ask, and it's generally considered a bit rude, we would generally think if we if we present as a, let's say, as a patient at a, a hospital, we would tend to think that the hospital has checked that, you know, this this surgeon is qualified and obviously sometimes as as we hear from time to time in the news those checks don't always work sometimes something gets forged or missed out and and bad stuff happens but generally generally there is that concept of of someone who stands behind the assertion that you are a civil engineer you are an architect you are a, a brain surgeon for me, that's the thing which our institutions are uniquely positioned to be able to do. If if anyone can say this person is qualified, they are capable of performing brain surgery, let's say, and then that's our institutions. That and and I think it is quite possible that that accreditation role, if you like, could be co-opted. It could go somewhere else. And, you know, we'll be talking about learning coding. If Google says, hey, you know what? Sophie is just, you know, she is a badass. She is she is an ace coder. Probably a lot of employers will go, hmm. well, good enough for me. You know, she's got a certificate from the, let's call it the Google School of Coding. That's what I think is fascinating about new entrants and, if you like, startups like like Wolf University is how do you get to the point where a, a credential that you award has the status that it competes with, you know, competes effectively with an established institution? And if we kind of turn the spotlight 
uh, in a slightly different direction. Of course, we can see the likes of Udacity, mm-hmm. who obviously been through a few pivots. But there, there's a point now where, where having been around for long enough, perhaps you are starting to a- acquire some of the, the kudos that comes with being one of those established institutions. So it will be fascinating to see, mm. you know, can they build on this? Can they can they step it up? Or actually, is is their role, you know, thinking particularly about Udacity, it, will it turn out that a lot of what they do in practice is more kind of reskilling and upskilling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you want to learn to be a, a self-driving car engineer. You can't just step out of, you know, st- step out of school and go, hey, I'm going to do that. You need to have um, a grounding in some quite advanced mathematics for a start. You're, you're not just going to leap into self-driving car engineering unless you have the necessary background. So it may be that actually the people who are coming for those sorts of courses, they're not interested in learning everything from first principles. They're interested in kind of topping up, reskilling and upskilling. Beyond these challenges, what might success look like? Well, it's messy, people, and don't we just love that? We seize the day by ensuring that the outcome of that team-based approach is reflected in the classroom through excellent teaching practice that capitalises on designing for learning and designing for student participation. We seize the day by ensuring that when, when, when you come across a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which is designing a new campus, I don't think I'll ever have that opportunity again, we seize the day by making sure that the design of the new campus reflects and encourages practices that are conducive to student-centeredness. Those are a few ways in which I think we could seize the day. It's embedding a blended learning approach into the everyday so that using technology in education isn't just a, a one-off. It's not a, it's not a special occasion. It's not a... Uh, you know, a, a, a treat or, a, you know, an, an unusual activity. It's just a thing that we do. And when we reach the point where the blended learning isn't a, a separate thing, a special thing, it's just how we do teaching and learning, then we can start to really exploit the potential of the technology. I love the way that kids can ask these questions, though. You know, well, why do we do this thing? Why do we do things this particular way? And I think one of the big challenges for us in education is not to accidentally kind of sandpaper off the rough edges. I think the, that curiosity, that that thirst for knowledge, that excitement of learning new stuff, if we could use technology in education to amplify that rather than, if you like, kind of reducing everything to almost mechanical processes, things that are repeatable things that can be turned into an algorithm, then we're on to something good. That's all for this week. Thanks so much to all my guests and to you for listening. Come and join the conversation with us online at hashtag edu4 underscore zero. You can listen to the full-length interviews at www.patreon.com forward slash the edtech podcast. And to listen to the series, subscribe now on iTunes and Android players to the EdTech Podcast or check out our feeds on Twitter at JISC and at Podcast EdTech. 
For more reading, you can also check out all the references within this episode among our show notes at theedtechpodcast.com, along with a listener view on blended learning. Don't forget to come back to our next episode. Here's our trailer to remind you what we have coming up. Bye-bye. Okay, for standby. Switch on standby, please, huh? Coming soon. Education 4.0, a new series on the EdTech podcast co-curated with JISC. This seven-part podcast series will examine the changing world of higher and further education, exploring questions including where, when and how will learning happen when we are always online? How can we use AI to continuously improve the student experience? Who can help embed new technologies and working practices? Will there still be colleges and universities in the future? And how might today's institutions change? As the candidates for a degree kneel before the Vice-Chancellor, They will hear the same 600-year-old Latin formula of Be in that millennials find empowerment in discovering things on their own. It's natural for them to diversify their channels and seek out informal types of education instead of simply picking out a major. We tend to still think of work as a place you go rather than a thing that you do. And a lot of that thinking kind of spills over, I think, into education as well. Let's say you've started a, a three-year degree in October. So much will have changed by the time you, you come out the other end. But they see many parts of their lives that have really good digital experiences and they think that could add value to my education and they want to see that as part of their education. The Education 4.0 series is co-curated by Sophie Bailey, founder and host of the EdTech podcast, Martin Hamilton, resident futurist at JISC, and Sue Atwell, head of change for further education and skills and the EdTech launchpad at JISC. External contributions come from across education institutions, industry and research. To listen to the series, subscribe now on iTunes and Android players to the EdTech podcast or check out our feeds on Twitter at JISC and at Podcast EdTech. Follow the conversation using hashtag edu four underscore zero. Teaching well has to translate into tangible benefits for our learners. And those benefits, being an agent of change, being an employable citizen, being an ethical contributor to society, those are the the central principles of what we mean by being change makers in terms of staff as well as, as, as students. What's become very interesting and certainly in terms of staff well-being and staff mental health is this, this need to belong, need for a place. And we're also trying to create a kind of online and offline community for our apprenticeships. So we recognise that the other thing that the university experience offers is that ability to build networks and contacts and a community that you might use later in life. But we think that we can use tech to replicate, if not improve on that experience. These might be places to go and study in order to work out what really matters, who we are, where our societies should be headed, and how we can be happier and more fulfilled. I want to say to you that there are glorious benefits from AI, which will bring such advantages in depth of learning and experience. I mean, the idea is as you're transitioning from traditional learning to digital learning, or digitally enabled learning, like what are the conditions that would enable success? 